this is Fiona from Indie Live Podcast Team, and welcome to this week's guest podcast. In August, the Scottish Sovereignty Research Group held a very ambitious two-day conference in Dunfermline. Since then, they have been posting some video from various sessions that were held at that conference on their YouTube channel, which is SSRG TV. This week, we're bringing you one of the sessions from that conference, which was to do with the Scottish economy. And there's a discussion with Dr. Tim Rideout and Professor Richard Murphy, plus some questions from the audience. So that's this week's podcast. Hope you enjoy it. The, the frustrating thing about the last three and a half years is that it's blatantly obvious to me, and it's sure it's obvious to most of you and the thousands of other people that talks that we're an independent country, we have our own currency, and there's no debate about that. There are two very relevant examples to Scotland, in fact. Botswana. Anyone, anyone read the number one ladies detective agency? <laughs> but I've been to Botswana several times. It's a lovely country, completely flat, only two million, uh, and they're almost all Botswana, so it's one tribe, one language. And it's the most successfully democratic country in Africa. So there's a Scottish connection as well. Of course, it's David Livingston travelled many times through Botswana. So the Botswanan government decided that uh, if they were going to have the full powers of independence, they, they became independent from the UK in 1966. Uh, the IMF and everyone else told them that it was stupid, that they should carry on using the South African rand, and you know, they were too small and they didn't understand what they were doing and all the rest of it. And they just said, no, the advantages of having our own currency in terms of setting our own agenda, running our own economy, having full monetary and fiscal control over our economy are just so enormous that we're going to ignore all of you lot and we're introducing the Botswana and Pula as our new currency. They did that in August 1976. If you look at the Bank of Botswana website at the history, you will see that the South African rands that were handed in by Botswanans an exchange for Pula became the first foreign reserves of Botswana, which is exactly what I have always said about Scotland, that as we are doing in the foyer to here, we've sold about £2,000 worth of Scottish currency today. Uh, it is sold, and therefore your central bank, which issues that currency, acquires the money that is paid for it. And just as in the case of Botswana, that becomes our foreign reserves. So, you know, all this, oh, you have to save up and you have to accumulate foreign reserves. And all this. You don't. It's automatic. You arise, you get those from selling the currency uh, into existence. Botswana today, about two years ago, it overtook South Africa in terms of GDP per capita. It's now over 8,000 US dollars per person, uh, having in 1966, which was one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, they now have a sovereign wealth fund. Botswana, sovereign wealth fund. <laughs> And that sovereign wealth fund has over 2,000 US dollars per Botswana uh, from their diamond revenues that they have put aside for a rainy day. Now, another ex relevant example for us was Namibia. And they became independent from South Africa in the, the early 1990s. And the first thing they did was they ditched the South African rand and replaced it with a Namibian dollar in 1994. And have they any trouble with that? No. The Namibian dollar, they decided they were going to peg it to the South African rand, a choice they've made. Uh, but the Namibian dollar is perfectly stable. They haven't had any currency crisis. It works perfectly well. Uh, and they have also been a, a pretty successful small African country. So you know, if anyone says this is you know, rocket science, that uh, nobody understands how to, how to do it, whatever, there are two exactly similar examples to us which work perfectly well. So... That's probably enough from me. Um, I think the important thing 
The thing that I just don't get is why somebody, you know who, can't just appear on the television, get a question from Andrew Neil, what are you doing about currency? And say, well, same as the rest of the world, we're gonna have our own. That's all we need. <laughs> One important thing. Our currency report uh, is launched today. Uh, and uh, this, the booth in, not the Bureau de Change, but just the, in the coffee room there, the, uh, on the Scottish currency uh, stand, we have copies of the report which are available. And this sets out what should go in the independence prospectus. Uh, so, and uh, together with example timetables and also some thoughts on banking regulation, uh, where we're basically proposing the Canadian model of banking supervision and regulation. And strangely, the Canadian model of banking regulation is the 19th century Scottish model. <laughs> Let me follow on from what Tim has had to say. Look, I, I agree with everything Tim has said. So in a sense, why am I bothering? Well, I'm going to talk about the tax dimension to this because money and tax are the flip side of each other. If you are to have your own currency, which you are going to spend into existence from a Scottish central bank, then unless you are going to have inflation in your country, you must have a tax system. Tax does not pay for government spending in a country with its own currency and its own central bank. And any of you who are living in Scotland now should be, but aren't completely familiar with this idea, because that's how the UK has worked since 1866. If anyone in the audience can remember 1865, please put up your hands now. Otherwise, let's presume that you all can actually go along with the way in which the UK already functions. Why 1866? There was an act passed that year called the Exchequer and Audit Departments Act. Um, it was last updated in 2000. This is still current legislation. And what it basically says is, is that if the UK government passes a law and that law includes a budget for spending, then if the government then tells the Bank of England to pay someone to fulfil the obligations under that law, the Bank of England will pay, come what may, it will never look in the account that it holds for the government to say, is there any money there? Instead, it will create new money on the government's behalf out of thin air, like all money is, using this most deeply technical of instruments that you're all familiar with. They will tap a few numbers onto a keyboard, and in the process, they will put a loan in one account and a credit in another account, and that is how all money is created. But we can't obviously create money without limit. So whilst there is no question in my mind, and I know there's no question in Tim's mind, and I heard your reaction to his comment, that an independent Scotland has to have its own currency and has to have that currency as quickly as possible after Independence Day, we also have to address in that critical period between announcing independence and getting to Independence Day, how the Scottish tax system will work. Because if it doesn't raise revenue to actually fund government spending, what does it do? The most important task it actually has is to actually give value to the Scottish currency. One of the big questions I'm asked, and I've done quite a lot of talks around Scotland as well as Tim, what um, do have those people asked me in the meetings that I've done around Scotland and on Zoom and everywhere else? It's simply, how do we make sure that the Scottish currency that we're going to introduce is used? Why will people use it? And the simple fact is that people will 
basically have to use the Scottish currency if the Scottish government decides to have its own currency for one very simple and straightforward reason. And that is that the Scottish government will say you must pay your tax using the Scottish pound. We won't accept the UK pound in settlement or with the euro or the US dollar or the rand or whatever else currency we might like. No, the Scottish tax bill that you have as a result of buying something when you owe VAT or as a result of receiving your pension or wages when you might owe income tax, that bill must be paid in Scottish pounds. And because you have to pay your tax bill in Scottish pounds, two things follow. First of all, no business will take the risk of trading in another currency because the risk of trading in one currency and owing the tax bill in another currency will be too big. They can't afford to take that currency risk of accruing the bill in one currency and having to pay it in another. And the same thing is true with regard to people. People will want to be paid in the currency which they owe the tax in. To discover you've had £20 sterling taken off the payment that you owe, but actually you then owe £22 Scottish because the currency's moved in the meantime is not going to be something people want. So the reality is the biggest reason why we need a very good and functioning Scottish tax system is to force the use of the Scottish currency into everyday operation. And at the same time, that Scottish tax system has to be very clear and very strong and very effective, much more effective, I would suggest, than the UK system is now, which only collects about 90p in the pound of everything that is owing, because what we need in an independent Scotland is strong macroeconomic control of the economy of Scotland to make sure that when the government decides it's going to do some pretty radical things like helping ordinary people rather than helping large corporations, you know, it might actually not follow the economic policies of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, for example. If it was to actually say we want to ensure that everybody pays their fair rate of tax because we want a positive redistributive tax system that reduces inequality in Scotland, and I hope it would do that, then it must make sure that everybody pays. And that requires Scotland to have a very different political as well as economic approach to tax. In the UK, we have lived for a long time with governments who've pretty much been willing to stand back, have light touch on regulation and underfund HM revenue and customs, our UK current tax authority. I was around in 2005-06 when, um, very much around in 2005-06 when HM revenue and customs was formed as a result of the merger of the inland revenue as it was and HM customs and excise as it was. And there was one reason for the creation of that organisation, and that was to cut costs. 100,000 staff in 2006 are now around 60,000 staff now. I got an answer to a letter yesterday from the revenue on behalf of the clients. People might like to guess how long it took me to get a reply. I'll tell you, it was three and a half years. <laughs> they said, apologies for our delay in replying. We've thought about the issue that you raised. We are of the same opinion that we expressed in late 2018. So they didn't even change their mind in the intervening period. So now we're going to have to get a court. Um, but you know, that's how bad the service now is. We need in an independent Scotland, a functioning tax authority to give people certainty about where they stand, to make sure that everybody pays the right amount of tax, and to ensure that therefore the social and economic policies, which the tax system of a country is 
critically able to deliver, whether that is support for particular industries or a tax system that taxes bads out of existence, alcohol, tobacco, carbon, the green transition, all of these things will be influenced by tax or encourages good things, education and healthcare and so on. Again, all things that the tax system can do. It has to function well to do that. And so I've argued in two white papers that I've written on the future of tax in Scotland, one for Common Wheel, one for another group, um, that we really need to invest heavily in the thinking about what the Scottish tax system is to deliver. Most of that is in a book I wrote a while ago called The Joy of Tax. I have to explain to my students that tax is the most interesting three-letter word ending in X in the English language, and a lot of them don't believe me. So, um, uh, but the book... Um, was quite successful, um, sold a lot of copies, was once the subject of a dope joke by David Cameron at Conservative Party conference. He said he'd taken it home and tried it out with Samantha and it didn't work. Probably the tackiest joke ever told by a UK prime minister um, in public. And I enjoyed it because it pushed up sales by at least a thousand copies. Great for David Cameron, good for me, but pretty awful. The point about the book is that it explains just how we can use tax for the social advantage of a country that really wants to deliver social justice. I genuinely believe that is one of the major reasons why the people of Scotland want to be independent, to get rid of the mess, the ghastly neoliberal mess that they've had to live under for so long that we hate. And this is the reason why we want to go forward. And if that's the case, then my argument is that we need a strong, effective tax system and an independent Scotland, not just to support the value of the currency, because it will do that, but also to deliver those social and economic policies that will build the foundation for genuine prosperity across Scotland in the future. What will happen to the pound, the value of the British pound, given that most of our savings and pensions are in that when we go independent? Is there not a danger that the value of the pound will crash and there'll be consequences to that? I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's been very difficult to start making predictions about the value of the currency years in advance. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think the, the fact that we have savings in sterling and are going to probably remove most of them uh, is going to have much effect on the value of the pound. I think what is going to be more significant for the value of the pound is the effect on I'll call it for shorthand the English balance of payment by removing Scotland and our imports and exports from that equation. The UK at the moment has one of the, the worst balance of payments positions it's ever had in terms of. There are two deficits. There's a government deficit, and which we you hear a lot about, and there's your, your, there's your balance of payments deficit, which used to be something that was featured much in the news up until the 1970s. It's disappeared. We don't bother. We, don't, we ignore it happily. Uh, but the, uh, the UK's balance of payments deficits, are, you know, the, and the balance of payments basically tells you whether you're paying your way in the world or not. Uh, it's the worst it's ever been. So, you know, there's over 100 billion a year deficit take away the Russian oligarchs' money, which has been propping us up, but take away Scotland, which doesn't have a balance of payments deficit, and it just makes the English position worse. So that, I think, might tend to suggest that sterling would continue its long 100-year trend of falling. It's worth bearing, you know, if anyone says you want to keep sterling, you know, keep your money in sterling. Uh, the pound sterling 100 years ago was $4.86 to the pound. And uh, when my mother spent a year in Switzerland in uh, 1947, uh, you got 25 Swiss francs to the oh. pound. And today you get one Swiss franc to the pound. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you think that sterling is a good place to keep your life savings, it probably isn't. 
Okay. Uh, Richard, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I would. Um, look, there's an, the exchange rates of countries are not determined by short-term financial shenanigans. They are over a period of a few days. We know that financial markets are capable of trying to move the value of a currency by you know, literally combined assault on its value over a period of a few days. But over the longer term, the sorts of periods that Tim was just talking about, and even a year or two, that just doesn't happen. They can't be bothered to keep up in a sustained attack of that sort. The reality is that the relationship between currencies is determined by their relative trading positions. Why has the value of the pound fallen so heavily since 2016? Let's put a one word answer to that one. It's called Brexit. That is the reason why we currently are not in a great position with regard to the UK's finances and why the pound has fallen in value, because relatively our trading position is worse than it was prior to the Brexit poll in 2016. What also determines things are the relative merits in trade, as Tim has just explained. I happen to think Scotland has very long term positive benefits in trade, which will become apparent when it's independent. In particular, those benefits are on some very fundamental products, which are going to become in increasing short supply. One is energy, um, where Scotland clearly could generate substantial surpluses and has a neighbour very close by, slightly to the south, who is going to be decidedly short of energy, I suspect. And the other commodity that Scotland has quite a lot of, which, um, again, that near neighbour wants a lot of, but which is going to be in desperately short supply, is fresh water. This is the commodity that we haven't even thought about trading yet. But I believe that those two by themselves would actually, over a relatively short period of time, make it apparent that Scotland has economic strengths that are not in existence in England at all. So there are, apart from the fact that I have to think that Tim's right, there is probably a good balance of trade already, you know, a perfectly acceptable one, and that could get better. These things are going to improve the value of the pounds, uh, the Scottish pound. Now, actually, the bad news about that is that people who do receive their income in sterling will be worse offers a result, not better off, worse off. That's what is likely. But if the Scottish pound is worth so much more, and I suspect it will be, than the English pound, the Scottish government may well be in a position to provide some sorts of guarantees to those who've got fixed income in Scotland from English pension funds that they cannot translate. That will be the most fortunate position to be in, and Scotland will be able to afford to compensate those who've lost out as a result, at least for a significant period of transition. So really, overall, do I think that there's a, a fundamental cause for concern here? No. Or the biggest risk we face is that the Scottish pound will actually be worth a lot more than the English pound. Everyone obsesses about the other way around, and I can't see that happening. I can see there being a problem in the Scottish pound being worth more than the English pound. And as I said, the Scottish government will then be able to afford to compensate the only group in Scottish society who could lose out from that, who are pensioners on fixed English sterling pensions, because it could afford to do so in that fortunate situation. Is there something to worry about here? I just don't get the stress. I'm sorry, but I just don't get it. Both speakers have said we must have our Scottish currency with independence, not wait indefinitely, like Andrew Wilson seems to favour. Now, Tim, your amendment that's carried allows vagueness to exist in the SNP's policy. And it's quite clear that some of them are interpreting it along Andrew Wilson lines. There are others like uh, GMK who 
also is advocating wait some time before introducing the Scottish currency. How would you respond to these? When I raised the amendment, uh, I'd also uh, give credit for Richard because um, you know my speech, for example, uh, at the conference was jointly crafted between me and Richard. But uh, uh, no, um, I carefully phrased it to be that we should have we should start the preparations for our currency immediately as practicable after Independence Day. Now, I didn't say the next day or 30 days, whatever, because that sort of specifics just allows for an argument about, oh, well, what about 35 days or day two as opposed to day one or something stupid like that. But I'm quite clear that as soon as practical means a couple of months. And I always meant that. And, uh, why is that? Because there is a fundamental problem with sterilization of any long period, as in years. And that is it won't work, it'll collapse just as the Czech-Slovakia arrangement of sharing a currency collapsed within five weeks, I think. And that's because one of the key reasons for us becoming independent is because we want to diverge from England. We do not want to pursue the same economic policies as London will pursue. And you know, if you are trying to diverge from somebody and you're, you want to follow completely different economic, monetary, fiscal policies, different tax rates, all the rest of it, change the economy, you can't carry on using somebody else's currency where they are setting the interest rates, they're controlling the foreign exchange rates, they're controlling how the tax system is going to work uh, and all of that sort of thing. So that's one problem. You want to diverge and the only way to do that is to disconnect from them. Uh, there is another problem in that uh, if you have an account at Barclays, for example, and you wish to pay somebody who has an account at Santander, how does the money actually get from Barclays to Santander? And the answer is it goes via the Bank of England because it goes through the UK payment system. Now, that is fine when you're all members of the UK payment system and you all have, all the banks have a reserve account at the Bank of England where they keep their, the bank's money and that money is what moves. So if I move £100 from Barclays to Santander, that is £100 that goes from the Barclays account at the Bank of England to the Santander account at the Bank of England. Once you cease to be part of the UK, that access is removed. There are no foreign banks that have access to the UK payment system. And uh, the UK has been quite clear that they're not going to change the rules just for Scotland. So people say, oh, they can't stop us using sterling. No, they can't stop us using sterling banknotes and pound coins and so on. They can stop us using the UK payment system because they can just switch it off. And they might not, you know, they, they, we might reach an agreement that they keep it on for two years or something like that. But you're now, you're, you're now sitting in a position where London controls all the cards. And at a few minutes notice, they can disconnect all your online banking, switch off the cash line machines and all the rest of it. You really want to take that risk that somebody's just going to flip the switch. So uh, that's another reason. Um, and I just don't think that you know, sterlingization, if you look at it, nobody does that because it just isn't a clever idea. It's a completely stupid, nutty idea. Uh, somebody will say, oh, but there are countries which use somebody else's currency. Yes, Panama uses the US dollar. And I've had the House of Commons library research Panama. 90% of people in Panama don't have a bank account. They use cash, notes, and coins. Most of them have never made an online transaction or an internet purchase. And if you only use notes and coins, fine. Nobody, you know, you just as long as you've got enough US dollar notes, that's fine. But that's not the position in Scotland. 96% of transactions in Scotland are digital. 
And all of those transactions are going through the UK payment system. So you cannot put yourself in the totally dangerous exposed position of relying on somebody else's goodwill. And there's a third reason uh, for not going for sterlingization, and that is that the Scottish government will have a deficit. Bound to have a deficit. We're going to have, you know, we're going to be need to employ 30,000 new civil servants in the Ministry of Defence, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Finance Ministry, uh, and all of these things. We'll need office blocks to put them in, and they're going to be spread around the country because my resolution was accepted last year at the SNP conference that uh, uh, the new jobs should be allocated to all local authorities in the proportion to their population. So that would be over a thousand jobs for the Western Isles, for example. So we are going to have those costs. And that's not a bad thing because that's 30,000 well-paid jobs, contracts for furniture, IT systems, construction contracts, whatever. It's all going to put money in our pockets. It's not going somewhere else and just sort of down the toilet or something. But we're going to run a deficit, which means that the Scottish government will want to borrow. And if we don't have our own currency, then we're going to have to borrow pounds sterling, which we don't have because we don't control pounds sterling. And we're going to have to go to London, cap in hand, and please, sir, what interest rate are you going to charge us? And, you know, what are the terms going to be? And so on. And uh, Charlotte Street Partners, friends in the clients in the city of London, they'll be falling over themselves to take the Scottish government to the cleaners on what it needs to borrow. Can I come in with a quick further reason? COVID is fresh in my memory because I was in bed with it last weekend. COVID will be fresh in the memory of many other people because of things like furlough. And the fact that we needed to run a very large record-breaking deficit in the UK to support people and businesses through COVID. That was possible because the UK government could create new money to pay for that deficit. The idea that a single penny of the expenditure on COVID was funded by a taxpayer is complete nonsense. Not a single penny of the COVID expenditure came from a taxpayer. It all came from money creation by the Bank of England, because, as I said before, they tapped a few numbers into one of those. And that's what they did. But if we come to the situation where Scotland is using sterling and there's another similar crisis. Let's say we have a cost of living crisis because of the cost of energy goes up to £6,000 a year for some households. And we have to actually issue new money to support them so that they can actually not have to make the choice between heating and food over the coming winter. If that was necessary, an independent Scotland could not make that decision if it didn't have its own currency, but it could if it did have its own currency. In other words, don't have your own currency. And basically, your economic and social policies are chopped off at the knees. You can't do what you want because you haven't got the money and the ability to create the money to deliver what the people of your country want. If you want to shackle the people of Scotland to the Bank of England and to leave them in poverty, by all means, use sterling. Otherwise, heavens above, within a fortnight of independence, that new currency has to be on the road. There was an online question, what is the ri- risk of capital flight for Scotland? Zero. Uh, because <laughs> firstly, uh, the introduction of the Scottish pound is voluntary. So you do not have to change your sterling into Scottish pounds if you don't want to. As a simple, simple example, if you imagine that this room is divided into two halves, and uh, all of this side over here have got their um, uh, salt eye underpants on uh, underneath, and uh, their ardent yes supporters, 
while that lot over there, including John and Andrew in the front row here, they've got their Union Jack underpants on, and they're all secretly... <laughs> they're all secretly no voters. Now, if I say, right, last night at midnight, I confiscated all your sterling, diverted it to Scottish pounds. This lot's going to be very happy. That lot is going to be horrified. And the moment the banks open, they'll be down to the bank to try and change their new Scottish pounds back to the sterling that they wanted. So if you make it compulsory, all you do is guarantee that the currency crashes on the first day of trading. So you don't do that. You make it voluntary. It's only voluntary sort of, well, you know, it's not really voluntary because, as Richard said, you're going to have to pay your going to have to pay your tax bill and you'll find that you need the need to use the Scottish pound in the shops and when you go to a restaurant and so forth. But Ruth Davidson can keep her savings and her £350 a day from the House of Lords in sterling under the mattress if that's what she wants to do. So you don't have to change your, your sterling into Scottish pounds. So there's no need for anyone to move their sterling. Now, in fact, because of the practicalities of this, we will actually move your sterling for you shortly before the Scottish currency comes into use. And that's because your sterling bank account will need to be moved to an English bank. So that's if you're, if you're using, say, RBS, Royal Bank, of Royal Bank of Scotland, which is the Scottish part of NatWest Banking Group, your sterling account will be moved to NatWest. And it'll stay exactly as, you know, say the same cards and all the rest of it as it is at the moment, same account number, whatever, but it'll just be legally moved to England. And you will get a new account at RBS, which will be in Scottish pounds. So nobody needs to move their sterling out of Scotland because it's going to do that anyway, but it's, there, there is a no compulsion whatsoever to change sterling into Scottish pounds if you don't want to do so. So if you have, you know, if you have a million pounds that you want to keep in sterling, you're welcome to keep it in sterling. So there is no need for any currency flight. That's a red herring that just demonstrates a lack of understanding of the process. I've written a couple of books on capital flight, tax havens and all that sort of abuse, and I can't add anything to what Tim has said. He's absolutely spot on. So um, I don't know if people are too familiar with the British Constitution Group. There's a gentleman called Justin Walker. His ancestor was a, a member of the Treasury at one point years before. And just before the First World War, they issued a note called the Bradbury Pound. And it was issued by John Bradbury. It was printed within four days and it was backed by the sweat of the people. It was accumulated by the, the wealth of the country, the nation, plus the GDP and things like that. So say Britain was worth 70 trillion, you could automatically leverage a trillion in cash and get that on the streets. And it was a highly welcomed uh, currency system um, that got phased out after it actually paid for the First World War because Britain was actually sliding off a cliff back then as well in the economy. So why couldn't we have a, a John Bradbury type bad, uh, pound and use that backed by the sweat of the people and the economic wealth uh, resources and manufacturing? Yeah, well, instead of having a debt currency, which would be a fiat currency, why can't we have it backed by something that's tangible by the sweat of the people? Um, jump in first. I think I think there's a, there's a misunderstanding there. So uh, uh, all currencies uh, that, uh, that exist at the moment are what are called fiat currencies, which just means that they're legally declared to be a currency. Uh, they are all backed by the power of the state, and the, the state is us. Uh, so there's no, there's no, there's nothing physical backing any currency. There isn't a stash of gold or, uh, you know, something like that. The currency, uh, you know, as Richard said, it's worth something because you have to pay your tax bill in that currency, and uh, the the stability and otherwise of the state 
the good governance, the competence, um, the strength of the economy, those are what back every currency. You know, the Swiss currency is very strong because Swiss, Switzerland is an exquisitely run country that has a very long sort of several hundred year track record of, you know, managing everything very nicely and so forth. So Germany, you know, the euro is a strong currency fairly uh, because you know, it has the power of the German economy behind it. Uh, something like Venezuela is a disastrous currency because it's completely disorganized and uh, you know, has managed to get itself in a complete mess. So that's what underlies your currency. So you know, the Scottish pound will be you know, implicitly backed by the strength of the Scottish economy and our innovations and hard work and the competence of the Scottish government and so on. So don't, we don't need any special currency to do that. That's just what's going to happen. Can I just explain that the question, and I'm sorry I didn't catch, catch your name, but the question's got the question the wrong way round. The thing was that actually the English currency, the UK currency, if you like, used in 1914 was on the gold standard. It was backed by something physical. And the reality was that we didn't have enough gold to pay for the First World War. So the Bradbury pound was, in fact, a fiat currency. And a fiat currency is simply a promise to pay. And you know that money is all money is a promise to pay because it's printed on the note now. And I hope it'll be printed on a Scottish note in a sense. Is it on your note, Tim? But the point is that actually the Bradbury pound is the fiat currency which worked to solve the problems in funding the First World War. And it was the standard currency issued by the Treasury at the time or the Bank of England at the time, which was gold back, which didn't work. We now only have fiat currencies. There are almost no non-fiat currencies in the world. And for Scotland to do something out of step with the rest of the world when it came to currency and try to back buy gold or silver or whatever else would be completely off the scale of madness. It would collapse the currency overnight. So on your Tim, your plan for getting your currency, you're right in your observation that we can exchange um, our sterling, sterling accounts and then move that into foreign exchange reserves around 50 to 60 billion, depending on how much you exchange. Uh, you're inspired that from the Common Wheel paper, but Peter Ryan says, uh, just for his view, that he thinks that's not possible, despite the fact you reference countries that already did that. So I'm just wondering for you, why do you, what's your view on that? Why do you think Peter Ryan's wrong on that? And how, how to a degree, how much emphasis do you put on foreign reserves when we're already using our fiat currency? It, it's unfortunately, it gets a bit technical. Uh, what the Scottish Reserve Bank ends up with is the the reserve account balances which the commercial banks currently have with the, the, bank, the bank of England. So uh, at the moment, well, it's 2020 accounts, uh, RBS PLC, which as I said, is the 11% of NatWest Group that is based in Scotland. Uh, they had 27 billion on deposit at the Bank of England. That's the bank's reserves. And that was against their balance sheet, which was 92 billion. Um, now, when RBS has, the, when the RBS's customers, have moved all of their money into RBS Scotland as the new Scottish pound account. So the 92 billion balance sheet has moved to Scotland and the Scottish pound. That means that the 27 billion that the RBS had in the Bank of England now belongs to the Scottish Reserve Bank. And RBS has a new 27 billion Scottish pounds in its Scottish Reserve Bank account. So effectively, at the end of the conversion process, what the Scottish Reserve Bank ends up with as the foreign reserves 
is the current Bank of England balances of our banks. So it's not all of the money. Effectively, it's the difference between our savings and our liabilities, our assets and our liabilities. So people in Scotland at the moment have about 200 billion of sterling cash. And we have about 130 to 140 billion of sterling loans. So if you use the cash to repay the loans, you end up with about 60 billion or so. That's our, that's, that's our net assets. And that's what becomes the property, the foreign reserves of the central bank. All money is double entry bookkeeping. Now, double entry bookkeeping is the most exciting subject on earth, but that's what Peter Ryan does not understand. He doesn't get that it's double entry. And as far as I can see, he hasn't done the double entry. Tim and I have been very boring about this. I mean, to be honest, we are a pair of geeks. We have talked about the double entry until we are satisfied we both know it. I published it on my blog. I've done it elsewhere. We are sure that this double entry works. And there is literally nothing else to money but double entry because it records two promises. Your promise to pay the bank, the bank's promise to pay you. That's what makes money. Nothing else to it. So I do believe that we actually have got this. But there's another point to add here. The obsession with reserves is inappropriate if the Scottish currency is allowed to float on the foreign exchange markets. And the Scottish currency must be allowed to float on the foreign exchange markets. The comparison that is always drawn is between Scotland and Denmark. Now, I happen to know Denmark reasonably well because I happen to be on the staff at Copenhagen Business School. Um, which is, as you might well be familiar, located in Denmark. So they have their own currency, but they peg it to the euro. As a consequence, because they peg it, and it's not wise, in my opinion, that they do, but they've done it, and that's their policy, they need a significant foreign currency reserve so that if somebody decides to attack their currency and say, we're going to try and make some money by trying to destabilise your relationship with the euro, Denmark needs substantial foreign exchange reserves to try to defend that value in exchange. If only it floated, which is what I just said Scotland should do, there wouldn't be anyone to defend the value of the Scottish pound. And therefore, if somebody tried to attack it, it would be completely pointless because they couldn't make a profit because they can only make a profit if someone defends the value. So actually saying you're going to float removes the risk of there ever being an attack in the first place. It's really that simple. But you don't need reserves in that case because you're not going to try and defend something which you would say is indefensible. Take me I take us all back a few minutes ago, and I said the real exchange rate is determined not by these short-term attacks. Anybody can try and do a short-term attack. Yeah, but the, the real exchange rate is determined by fundamentals, and Scotland has the fundamentals to maintain a strong currency. If it has the fundamentals to maintain a strong currency and does not need reserves to actually defend that currency against attack because there's no reason for anyone to attack it, the, this desperate desire for substantial foreign currency reserves, which are based almost entirely, it seems, on this comparison with Denmark, are wholly misplaced anyway. And, um, uh, Richard, I'm not sure to what extent you're aware, but we actually have released a Scottish currency at the uh, banknotes. I know. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that Tim will get you a copy of them so that you know the, the, the real uh, currency so that uh, so that you can enjoy them as much as we have. So uh, thank you, everybody. And uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Tim. And been listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts from the Interlife Podcast team. Thanks for listening. 
don't forget to subscribe and you won't miss our podcasts which go out every Friday with the occasional midweek extra as well. Also, check out our Indie Live Extra YouTube channel for extra goodies. Bye now.